Hello, and welcome to Oracle Conversations. I'm Jay Howard, an instructor of communication at Missouri State University, and we're here to have conversations with people from all seven departments in the Reynolds College of Arts and Letters. That means the departments of communication, theater and dance, media, journalism, and film, English, music, art and design, and modern and classical languages. Something I'm really excited about is that for those of you who are counting, today's episode constitutes the 15th installment of our Cole Conversations. My initial goal was seven episodes, and we've now more than doubled that, and there's lots coming up on the horizon too. In fact, I'm at a place now where conversations are being recorded faster than I can get them edited and uploaded, so that's a good problem to have. The project continues to grow and evolve a little bit with each episode, and I'm so thankful to the guests and to you, the listeners who tune in. Today's episode features Dr. Kyle A. Thomas, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Theater and Dance. He is the theater program coordinator and also the faculty advisor for the Laboratory Theater Company, which is one of the topics of today's conversation. Dr. Thomas has a YouTube channel called The Theater History Professor, and he co-hosts a podcast called The Teaching Drama Podcast. We also talk in some detail about several plays that Dr. Thomas has directed, some of which are allegorical. For example, one of them is called Everybody, which is a play that asks the questions, what does it mean to live a good life? And what does it mean to die? We talk about how... The thing that makes something a lasting work of literature is the way that the story grapples with the pressing questions of existence. Drama, in particular, can be a prism through which we examine our own lives. As a theater historian, Dr. Thomas is very knowledgeable about medieval drama. We talk about what the hallmarks of drama in that period were and how they can be compared and contrasted with today. But we start off today's conversation with a question about a 2014 book titled Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. I read Station Eleven back in 2018, and there's now a television show based on the book, which came out in December 2021 on HBO. Characters in the book travel around a post-apocalyptic North America performing Shakespeare. So that's where we pick up today's conversation. Thanks for listening. I was reminded that, okay, so Station Eleven was the big read in Springfield, Missouri in 2018, which feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, now. it does. Um, but that's, that's why I read it. And um, I listened to a, a talk by the author um, in the, the library center um, and then was just watching the um, the television show, which was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but for listeners who haven't read it, uh, it follows the story of, well, it's a post-apocalyptic story where a group of musicians and actors become what they call the traveling symphony and go around from town to town. And there's a lot of themes in the book, but it just talks about the importance of the arts, I think, and, and all of that. But as I was listening to uh, your guest lecture that you had delivered, um, it, you mentioned br- really briefly in the Q&A section, 
uh, I caught the phrase, the pageant wagons of late medieval England. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> now, this is, is something that I don't know anything about, but uh, uh, it's something clicked in my, in my mind and I thought, I bet this is what the imagery from Station Eleven is based on. The sort of like wagon train where they load up the harpsichord or whatever and um, yeah. pitch their tent and, and put on their, their plays to the, you know, the townspeople there. Um, so if, if that is what it's based on, what did they get right? Uh, what was it like in late medieval England? Well, I think one of the things that is for, first we need to discuss is that the pageant wagons of the late medieval theater in England and, and on the continent too we're not, these are not people who are traveling around the countryside. The pageant wagon model is really meant for the civic body of a certain location. Okay. So, so these are, so for example, probably the best, the best uh, medieval example of this is, is from York. Um, there's a York cycle that generally is just called the York cycle, but it's a cycle of plays that were done every year around the festival of Corpus Christi in the summer. And this was an opportunity for the guilds of York to really show off their participation in the, in the civic body of that town and of its community. And so these are, are kind of the forebears in a lot of ways of modern labor unions, but these hmm. are, are the individuals and groups within the community who are tasked with certain types of labor around the town. And during this festival, they would each create a pageant wagon. This isn't too dissimilar from the way we do pad, um, parades nowadays, where oh. a, a local business might sponsor a float in a parade, and they will get all the materials together and build it and staff it and put people on it and costumes and throw you know candy or whatever it may be off of the parade wagon while it, it goes through the main street of town for some big uh, special holiday or event. And so it's not all that different. So in medieval York, for example, there are different stations that are a part of the town, places where the wagons would roll up, they would stop one by one, and each one would perform a little play about usually their stories from the Bible a few apocryphal stories, but most of the standard stories you might get in a biblical retelling. So Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Noah and the Ark, Moses, so on and so forth, all through the life of, of Jesus and, and in Christ's um, eventual death and resurrection. And so it kind of tells the whole story of salvation, of Christianity in that, in that part of the world. But it's not just Bible stories. I really want everyone to understand that this isn't just a place where we're retelling our beliefs. It's really more of an opportunity to connect the identity of the town and the identity of the community with certain concepts in Christianity, but also work out what's going on in that town, like with issues of labor, using Bible stories. So one of my favorite plays in the York cycle is one about the, the uh, crucifixion of Christ. And it's done by the joiners and pinners, which are the group that knows how to basically put, you know, wood together and joint it and, and strengthen it via certain, you know, mechanical and wood connections and that sort of thing. So a very important group of people when building anything within town. And here they are, these experts at that kind of thing, 
and they're trying to nail Christ to the cross and they, they keep messing up. <laughs> There's this very dark humor about it. Goodness. That is, yeah, they're, they're, they're constantly messing up. They're trying to get this crucifixion, right? They're trying to get him on the cross and they're trying to lift the cross up. They can't do that. And they, they finally get it up and it slides really hard down into the, it's post hole. And, oh, it's just, it's just off. You think, oh man, this is awful. And I think most people have this picture of the middle ages being this reverent period where the church is in control of everything and everybody's good Christians or at least trying to be. And here you have this example of a play where they're taking probably one of the most serious and somber moments in all of the Christian story and making jokes with it, making humor out of it, because it's an opportunity for the people in that group, that particular guild who are performing this for their, for their families and their friends and the people that their coworkers, folks that their neighbors, people that they live with in their community. And they're say they're, they're kind of making fun a little bit at what they do as a profession. And at the same time, they're also saying that everything we do is, you know, in service to being excellent and that uh, Christ you know, even though this play is is making fun, or well, not quite making fun of the of the crucifixion, but having fun in the midst of the crucifixion, is to say that that you know our job as human beings and our job as Christians both are to strive to be better, to strive to be better workers in our guild, whatever that may be, or to strive to be better Christians, how how we live our lives and how we morally and ethically interact with other people. And to look about the town and to see the work of these guilds, quite literally written in the, the layout of the city, and be reminded of those sorts of things every time we walk through the streets of our town, because it's our town, and this is how we celebrate ourselves and who we are and how we understand our relationship to the identities that we claim. So, so drama was a really big part of that, and, and the pageant wagons of, of the later Middle Ages were certainly... They were many of them were very extravagant. Many of them had lots of fun, like pyrotechnics and big uh, spectacle-driven kinds of things. And so, you know, in that respect, to tie it back to what you're originally talking about with this wonderful book and now a, a television series, Station Eleven, that yeah, I mean, they do get it kind of right because I think one of the things that we see in shows like that or books like that. By the way, this also made me think of The Postman. Do you remember that old? movie with uh with kevin costner oh, yeah. back in the 90s he's he does a similar thing he does he's he's a shakespeare performer he goes around with his dog and i think it's his dog and maybe he's got one or two other people with him and he goes from town to town and he performs shakespeare he does shakespeare monologues and everything like that so very similar kind and it's post-apocalyptic so it's it's very similar kind of setting and i'm always just shocked and, and i laugh at when i see these settings these post apocalyptic settings and people are itinerant travelers going around and doing theater usually shakespeare and entertaining towns one by one but what the, what they're doing even when they and when i think a lot of these shows and books and media center that type of of action on is working out the world that they live in now this post-apocalyptic world that's dangerous and 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 um, in many respects uh, you know everything's falling apart, and yet using drama to work those things out. So I think in Station Eleven they talk a lot about King Lear is the first part of the book, and and there, that's a part of their performance and everything. And there's this idea of society changing through, and that Lear is kind of this stalwart old 
symbol of a time gone by and and yet you know and, and there's a new generation of leaders coming and those sorts of things and also has to deal with like memory and old age and uh, all that sort of stuff but the they do a lot of, of leader yeah so it's drama becomes this yeah drama is very much this this vehicle to get us to and through the big questions that we're asking in in these worlds that are that we're experiencing via you know, Station Eleven, The Postman, what what have you? It's no different in medieval yeah. drama. So, doing these these stories that audiences may feel isn't are in some sense universal or bigger than them, and using them to find meaning for their locality, um, yeah. and, and come up in, in their identity. Since we're on the topic of uh, biblical themes in stories, um, I'd love to ask you about the play of Adam. Um, mm. So I just recently watched the uh, short documentary that you you had sent to me about about it and listening to those rhyming couplets and quatrains um, and it's doing much the same thing, right? Um, that the oh yes for, for for the original audiences. Yes, it's so. If your listeners aren't familiar, the play of Adam is a 12th century Anglo-Norman play. So it's written in a in a French dialect that would have been a part of of most of England at that time period, particularly the upper echelons of the uh, ruling class, and then um, lots of France, particularly Norman France at that time period. And so this is a play that that, that details the story of of Adam and Eve first creation, Adam and Eve, then Cain and Abel. And then it has this really interesting kind of third act to it, which is going to be a very unfamiliar for a lot of folks who, who don't work in medieval theater. It's called the Service of the Prophets. In Latin, it's known as the Ordo Profitarum. And it is pretty standard in several plays. You actually see it. And it's basically taking the prophets of the Old Testament who all, or in most cases, predict the coming of a Messiah and identify that messianic mm. prophecy with which is later identified with Jesus himself. Um, these these prophets all come forward and they explain their prophecies and they explain why it is they they think the way they do and and how to recognize the Messiah and so on and so forth. So that's the last part of the play. Uh, but we got the opportunity when I was in graduate school. I was uh, studying under Dr. Carol Symes. She is a specialist in in medieval theater and drama and performance. I was very lucky to study with her at the University of Illinois, and her, she translated, she created a new, a new translation into English of this Anglo-Norman French play from the 12th century, and did a, just a brilliant job. She she kept the, the meter that was really fun and playful. She kept the rhyming schemes, which were, made it even more interesting to see how certain things would come together, uh, and she did just a, a brilliant job. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art, their cloisters wing, which is their whole medieval wing, they contacted uh, Carol and asked if they could perform her new translation. And she was obviously obliged. And when they started searching for directors, they found me because obviously of my connection with her, but my background in directing. And so it seemed like a natural fit. And I was given the opportunity to direct my own advisor's translation and she got to be in it, actually. And uh, we hired a cast of wonderful actors. We performed this at the Cloisters. And if you don't know anything about the Cloisters, it is 
three medieval monasteries from Europe that were brought over to the United States in the early part of the 20th century. Just brick reformed, by brick. Yeah, brick by brick, piece by piece, rebuilt according to the medieval standards and actually brought together into one big complex. So wow. they're all connected now. But but there's one, the Fuente Duena Chapel from Spain, which was built in the 12th century. So we have a 12th century chapel, the nave of this chapel, and a 12th century play putting them both together and we create this incredible brilliant work of art and truly one of the most unique and and in just awe-inspiring and i mean but in every sense of the word awesome opportunities that i've ever had to be around some of i got to we got to go through the cloisters and see some of the work that's not publicly viewable and it's just amazing and if you're ever in new york please go up to the cloisters it's in the northern part of manhattan it's great. It's a beautiful museum. But every now and then they do performances there. They do medieval music and medieval plays and things like that. But it is a lot of fun. And that was just an opportunity I'll never forget to be able to be in this ancient space, directing this ancient play and wow. bringing it back to life for audiences in New York in the 21st century. Well, I, I want to ask you more about your directing background, but before I, we change the subject, um, I have in my notes here, ask him about the Antichrist. And uh, <laughs> I, I didn't want to ambush audiences with that question right off the bat, but. <laughs> no, it's great. It's good. I'm an expert on the Antichrist. That's true. <laughs> so I, I am a specialist on a very particular, in medieval theater, as we've kind of already set, established. But specifically, my dissertation in the last, oh my goodness, 10 years of my career have been focused primarily on one play. And that is a play that in Latin is known as the Ludus de Antichristo, which you might be able to put together is the play about the Antichrist. And it is also a 12th century play. It was written around the year 1159, 1160. It is, we believe that it was probably created at a monastery in Southern Bavaria southern germany known as tegancy and it was a little benedictine monastery nestled in the foothills of the alps just a gorgeous location and they this is where the the surviving script comes from so we we know that they had a full script of this play at this little monastery around uh, the second half of the 12th century but it's it's this really weird play um the first it's basically two acts the first act is the story of the they they just call him the emperor and he's supposed to be the what comes to be known as the holy roman emperor and he goes around europe and most of the world conquering these various nations france and and the greeks and babylonians and then eventually jerusalem which at the time was a crusader state Hmm. so it was kind of in this realm of of european influence and connection and so the first half of the play ends with the emperor conquering all of these various nations and then going to Jerusalem, um, taking his scepter and his crown, the symbols of his authority on earth, setting them in the temple in Jerusalem. And then at that moment is when the Antichrist appears, and he's uh, accompanied by these allegorical figures, hypocrisy and heresy. Okay. And he then, he then sets about tricking everybody. So he starts by, by being really deceptive, and then he gets um, um, 
really violent and he starts his own wars. And so he goes around Europe conquering all these other kingdoms. Eventually he conquers the, the, the figure that was the emperor in the first half of the play. And he sits back and he's like, haha, I've done it. I am the true Christ. I am the ruler of the world and, and everybody needs to bow down to me. And we get a little bit of a shift in the dramatic action. And it, this, the play then becomes about this character known as Synagoga and her relationship to this other character known as Ecclesia. And they are allegorical figures for um, Judaism and, and Jewishness, as well as Christianity and, and, Christ, and Christians in Europe. Okay. So these two figures become really important. The second half of the play, Synagoga initially believes that the Antichrist is the Messiah and the prophesied Messiah. And then these two prophets show up and they convince Synagoga that he's not. And Synagoga and the two prophets try to convince everybody else, the audience, that the Antichrist is not the true Christ. Antichrist has them killed. And then he sits back down on his throne and goes, I'm done. I did it. I win. And then there's this, this, the script says there's this loud sound that happens and then Antichrist falls down dead. And then Ecclesia walks up and goes, well, that's it, guys. I mean, <laughs> not that situation, but that's pretty much how the play ends. She's like, yep, hey, everybody, thanks for coming. Let's all be good Christians. All right, bye, everyone. <laughs> just kind of ends just like that. Just, it's great. It's wonderful. It's, it's a complete subversion of the way we teach dramatic theory now, nowadays. Yeah, and I love it. It's just like, that. yeah, yeah no, done with this play. But uh, yeah, it's a really, it's a really weird play written in a very interesting time in history and a very interesting place, which doesn't get a lot of focus. Huh. And, and it's not the most exciting play. It sounds like it is with all the battles, but there's a lot of repeated stuff. It's full of repetition, which kind of makes it um, sluggish in some hmm. ways. At least it reads that way. And I did stage it several years ago, 2013. And it, it does actually, it's a, actually a really fun play. It feels like a chess game. That's how I always thought about okay. it. Interesting. It was like with the structure of it. Yeah, you've got these pieces with these kings moving around and they're fighting one another and and they're trying to conquer land and take over the basically take over the world or or take over the board. And and we have to remember that that the Middle Ages is not a time where or or I should maybe I should preface it this way and say that most of the theatrical practices that were common in in the ancient world before the medieval period. So we're talking the Roman imperial period. Most of the theater of that period is, is what we call a proscenium style of theater, where you've got this backdrop or, or some type of scenic uh, scenery of some kind on the stage. And then the actors do most of their acting in front of that scenery. And then the audience sits in front of the actors watching them on a stage. Hmm. In, the, in the Middle Ages, we don't get a lot of purpose-built theaters until the very end of the medieval period. And instead we have this very different way of thinking about theater and particularly the layout of the space that we use. And Antichrist is no different. It's really much more of a theater in the round than okay. it is the standard kind of theater that we're, we're used to. And, and so it's really hard sometimes to visualize when you read these plays, what's going on, because you can't think of them as happening on a traditional stage like you mm. and I might be used to. It's very much immersive style or in the midst of or arena kind of theater where everybody is mixed up and so the audience the play becomes just as much about convincing the audience of things and trying to get them involved in the dramatic action as much as it is about its own world that exists separate from the audience like that kind of what we're used to today yeah interesting it must it's much harder to 
implicate the audience when the stage is like elevated and removed, yep. you know? Yeah. When you're sitting, you know, feet away from anything going on on the stage, it, sometimes it can be difficult to feel like you're a part of what's going on, but not so in the middle ages. So, yeah, I, I think that, that it's really, it's been really interesting as from the perspective of a theater historian to look at theater in the 19th and 20th centuries and see how much it moves to this proscenium model with dark theaters, audience sitting away from the stage quietly by themselves and everyone hushed and trying to focus and be respectful of what's going on on stage. And, and thinking about medieval theater where it's just kind of all around you all the time and, and you're dealing with the, the smells that are going on around you and the <laughs> sounds that are happening around you and, and, and people probably coming in and interrupting and being like, what's going on? And then somebody shouting from the other side of the, the, the marketplace or whatever, shut up, we're just putting on a play and like things like that, you know, and like that would almost certainly have been what it was like. And it wouldn't have been weird. It wouldn't have been strange. Um, and nobody would have been shushing anyone else to be like, be respectful, be quiet. We have to you know, turn our devices off and be, keep okay. our babies quiet and everything. <laughs> no, it was just like everybody was having there having a time and and doing a show. And those who were paying attention paid attention. And, and I do also like that you have to think about the actors. you got to mm. be trained to fight against that stuff. We don't train our actors now to, to really fight yeah. for the attention of the audience. Nowadays, our actors expect the attention of the audience. Exactly and I love it. Yeah, I like to think I like to train my actors to be like, hey, guys, you got to win over the attention of the audience. They don't you don't just deserve it because you walked out on stage. You've got to capture them. I think we teach that about books and other media like you got to really grab the reader's attention or whatever mm. it is. We don't tell that to our actors. You have to grab the attention of the act of the audience. That's a great point. They don't owe it to you. Yeah, I think about that sometimes in because um, when I teach public speaking, um, you know, we have in many ways ideal speaking conditions where you got like a lectern and a podium and a, yep. a pristine sort of PowerPoint projector thing behind you and a captive audience of classmates who are there. But um, and so it's, it's like different from, from, from YouTube, yeah. for example, where someone could watch something for two seconds and then click away and do something else. Because if, they're, if someone is in an audience in an in-person speech, they're kind of there for the duration. Um, but to try to fight against that, to, as you were saying, sometimes it's fun to do speech assignments outside, mm, um, like mm -hmm. out of the classroom, go into, yeah. go into campus, go to the bear pole or something. That's a great uh, idea. And, and give, give impromptu speeches out there with the distractions of the world swirling around the hurly burly of yeah. this life well, and just make yourself heard, you know, above the wind, above the construction noise. Yeah. Isn't there a, what is it Hyde Park in London where they have the, oh goodness, what is it called? Something corner where the guys, like you basically come out with your own little stool and you stand up and you have to, the whole idea is that people are out there just shouting at passersby and trying to convince them of something that's happening or some point of view or whatever. It, it runs the gamut from everything from aliens are going to destroy the world tomorrow to hey, let's vote for this politician or this particular measure or something like that. But I can't remember what it's called, but there's some corner and I think it's Hyde Park, but some park in, in London where they do that. They, they okay. stand up and they they have to be and they have to be theatrical. I mean, you've got to be big and, and part of being big is not just in the voice. It's also in the body and in the expressiveness and knowing when you've got an audience, then kind of how to to work that in a way that you are shaping your performance so that it, mm. it brings out the things that are most important that also gets to what is necessary to convince 
whoever is around you of, of whatever your point is. So, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a brilliant idea a great way of teaching uh, speech and public speaking. I love the tradition you mentioned in England. I'll have to have to look that up. And yeah, I wish I remember the name of it. It's something corner. It's like, it's like, you know, there's a poet's corner in Westminster Abbey and that's maybe what I'm getting stuck on, but um Free speech and demonstrations have been a key feature of Hyde Park since the 19th century. Speaker's Corner. Speaker's Corner. Yep. I found it too. Yep. Same time. Nice. Speaker's That's Corner. Nice. <laughs> it's been established as a point of free speech and debate. I knew I loved that tradition since 1872. <laughs> yeah. So Speaker's Corner. That's where that's where they stand and they do all the shouting <laughs> at people as they walk by and getting them to, to, I don't know, just listen to them, I suppose. I don't even think it's necessarily always just convincing anyone of a idea or point of view or argument as much as it is just getting people to gather around you and listen to what it is you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I wonder if there's a webcam set up there these days. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you never know where these conversations are going to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's the joy of doing this. Yeah, that's right. So I, I mentioned, um, well, you had mentioned your directing background. Uh, you also mentioned some allegorical plays. Um, and I'd love to bring it into uh, Missouri State and some of the productions that have taken place at Missouri State. And one that comes to my mind, uh, among many, I'm sure, is Everybody. Um, this is a play that I had that I, that I noticed um, a while back and didn't have the opportunity to delve more deeply into it. Um, but I know that it was allegorical um, and it was a play about death is that, or a story about death to some extent. Yeah. Um, and I'll just say, so when I was researching this, it was when Lisa Brescia was directing and working. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, COVID was just up on us, you know, for the, for the first time. And I was thinking, you know, we were wondering if the world was going to grind to a halt if like the essential workers are going to be able to deliver our pizza and stuff. Uh, and here's this play about the essential workers. Um, then on the, on the very next page of the productions that are going on, while well, I'm preoccupied with this plague that's encircling the world. Here we have a play about death. <laughs> so I'm like, how, how relevant Good timing, is right? single thing that the theater department is doing right now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know quite how to answer that, but yeah, I mean, no, it was very much foremost on our mind too when we were doing it. Uh, so this was last, so this would have been spring of 2021. Mm. We are about a, a year out from the start of the pandemic and the first vaccines are rolling out, but yeah, we, yeah, you're right. We spent a year just, just in, in total anxiety about the state of the world where are we ever going to have nor- some degree of normalcy anymore? Uh, how dangerous is this thing and, and yeah. how many lives is it going to affect some ultimately? Um, and, and yeah, so here's this play. It, it, it is, you know, it's just hitting me now. I think I was aware of it at the time, but I wasn't, I, I you know, you spent, I spent a whole year thinking about death and all the terrible things in the world. And so when we get to this play, it's kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, we all get it. We all know why we're doing this play, what it's about, and what's going on. And in some respects, it makes it hard to dive into the really difficult and challenging material because of that, because you're just so fatigued by 
mm-hmm. the amount of death around you, quite literally. And now that I think about it, you know, now a, a, almost a year out from the production of that show, and and definitely entering the what is this, the third year of the pandemic, third year of the I, yeah. yeah, exactly. This is what the uh, third year of twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, and 2022, as they say, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. Um, but you've got what, what I was, what I'm struck by is just how people in the middle ages might've kind of felt as well, because mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump ahead in time a little bit and, and go to the 1590s and you've got in London in the 1590s, the 15, the early 1590s, a, a plague hits and all the theaters close down and, and everything moves indoors and people are trying to be safe and cautious. And that's actually when Shakespeare writes some of his most well-known poetry and some of his earliest plays is during that time. And kind of then go back again, back in time again to the end of the 1400s. So probably about 100 years or so before Shakespeare is is sitting down to write some of his first early and some best work because of a pandemic. And you've got more. You've got them happening all around Europe regularly. And and we're not talking about the Black Death here necessarily, although that was certainly a concern um, and and a point at which nearly a third of the European population was, was completely wiped off the map because of a massive pandemic. But these pandemics would spring up from time to time. There was no, you know, with, without germ theory and without modern medical science, and public health, you can't, yeah, you can't really do much. Yeah. So you're just kind of at the whims of when these pandemics come up. And here in the middle of that world, you have someone sit down and write a play about, not about death so much as about dying. Hmm. And it's a play about how to die well. And it's certainly shaped, that, that idea of dying well is shaped by Christian theology and Christian morality. And this is everybody but, that you're describing? the play. Uh, so I'm, I'm describing a play called Every Man. Sorry, I should, yeah, I should have made that more explicit. And so this is a play that was written initially in Dutch for a theological school and eventually gets translated into English. And it has survived in its English translation. And I think there might be some fragments. We we have a few little fragments from the Dutch translation still, or the Dutch original uh, uh, still. But it's not exactly an exciting play. It's not. It doesn't read very quickly. It's it's kind of dense. Lots of big monologuing, and and there's a lot of issues with it. But it's a play about dying, and you have this central character named Every Man, and and God says, you know, every uh, we're going to send every man to his death, and an angel comes and tells every man, and then every man is joined by the character of death, which is not a, like a devilish figure. It's just the person I got a job to do and my job is death. So you're coming with me. And then everybody goes on this journey where he's trying to get things and people, these allegorical characters to come with him, like fr- uh, characters like friendship or fellowship is what is known as in the old English play. Um, it's not written in old English. It is a play an old play in English, I should say. Fair enough. And it is, uh, and so he goes to these very various figures and allegorical representations of the kinds of things that we would think about, like your stuff, the things, your goods, and the things you purchased, and your house, and your home, and your family, and your friends, and come with me on my to death, and all of them fail him, and even the things that he's virtuous about, wisdom and wit and health and beauty, those all fade away too, and the only thing, the only one that goes with him, uh, in the end is is this figure of of kind of salvific 
uh, Christian um, uh, belief in in the goodness of the soul and uh, what what how that comes about. It comes about through all of these interactions with all these other characters. So uh, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, modern playwright, award winning playwright, he takes this medieval play and adapts it uh, into this new play called Everybody and makes it for modern audiences, so updates some of the material, but largely keeps the same structure, keeps a lot of the same characters with new names. So fellowship becomes friendship, makes sense. Um, your, your various things, I can't remember the name in the, in the English play, but you know, there's a character called Stuff, which is quite <laughs> literally just all the stuff that you have. Uh-huh. Uh, you, have your kin, you have kinship and cousin, these two characters that represent your family. You know, and 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 on down the line, and he's yeah. encountering all these various characters, and and basically begging them or trying to trick them in some cases to come with him to death. In every case, they all can't go, and in the end, it's simply a belief in in the goodness of others and the goodness of yourself and your attempt to to be a good person that that brings you solace and recognition and that that now is the time and wow. and you move on to the to whatever comes next and that's all kind of left uh open ended at the end but you know to leave a little bit of room for hope as well but it is it's a very it's a very tough play because it deals with some really thematically challenging material and it's a harder play for actors because playing an out playing allegorical characters is actually much more complicated than it may <laughs> seem on its face <laughs> and then how do you do that like how do you make a, this play interesting for audiences today we did it outside as well so that was another challenge to to with all the COVID stuff. It made it more sense to do it outside. Yeah, we had live audiences, and it was the first show for the theater and dance department to have a live audience since we went on lockdown at the beginning of the pandemic. So it was a really lot of it was really kind of energizing to see all those people there, and it was very touching to suddenly be in the midst of a community of people again, particularly because a lot of folks that attend the show were from the theater and dance department. And they come and you're just like, oh, this is my community. These are the people I've been yeah. seeing on a on a computer screen for the last year. And now I'm I'm here and I'm amongst them. And we're all sharing this moment with something that all of us have been grappling with this last year. And we've all experienced it in different ways, but it is something that very much connects and unites us all. And it's something that we've all had to think about. What does it mean to live a good life? And what does it mean to die? <laughs> and how do we reconcile those two things in our heads and in our actions? Uh, so I, funny enough, and I, I've actually acted in the, the medieval play of every man. So I've been in that show and now I'm directing this modern retelling of it, everybody. And it just couldn't have been, it was far more poignant in its, in its uh, more modern retelling and I don't just give Brandon Jacob Jenkins the, the credit for that. I think a lot of it had to do with when we did it. But um, it just also shows that it is a relevant play. And whether you're doing the medieval version or the modern version, these are things that we all as human beings deal with. And, and it's kind of at the root of a lot of what drama is about. My goodness. Yeah, the, the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Yes, exactly. And the, the allegorical, it, you know, puts me in mind of Pilgrim's Progress, um, yes. and other sort of classics like that. And, you know, there, I think uh, I get, I want to make this kind of a big point that 
with audiences, it's real easy to look at, like even with Pilgrim's Progress, because that's a modern, it's a modern novel uh, in the modern era, I should say, of history. And and you get a play like every every man, and you got to play like everybody as well. And you know they're rooted in these very Christian, the this very Christian theology and system of belief. But I think what makes them lasting works of literature and lasting works of of theater is not the Christian belief, it, it, not that that's unimportant, but that it's the it's just one world's way of grappling with the most pressing questions of existence. Yeah. And, and that's, I think the thing that makes them really lasting and resonating works of art. It's the uh, questions that are powerful, not the answers. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's a great way of putting it. Yes. Very much so. Very much so. I guess one of the questions that I have as far as how this how how students interact is do students enroll into classes to end up in these uh plays that may happen in tent theater or something like that just for someone who who doesn't know you know who's maybe totally outside of the university system how does this work yeah that's a great question and a fun time to ask it too because (laughs) we're we're probably going to be changing everything next year oh interesting Uh, at the moment the way that this works is that our productions, what we call the main stage, uh, this is the theater and dance, this is the, the shows that the theater and dance department produces over the course of a year. It tends to be around seven shows, give or take, maybe one or two. And right now, the way it works is it's completely extracurricular. So a year ahead of time, we pick a slate of shows that we want to do. And then, and those are chosen based upon everything from their prowess as shows as as works of theater um and works of drama but also you know in terms of the makeup of our students like what kind of students do we have where are they in their training what do they need to learn what do they need to know what shows can kind of facilitate some of those things so there's a lot of lot of consideration that goes into our season once we've chosen those shows we then set their their dates with their the theaters. We have two theaters that we work out of, Coger Theater and the Balcony Theater. The Balcony Theater is much smaller, seats somewhere over 100. I Don't quote me on this. I think it's around 120, 130. The Coger Theater seats around 400 or so. Uh, of course, those are pre-COVID numbers nowadays with social distancing and such. We don't fill those theaters up anymore. But nevertheless, we, we pick the shows for the theaters, schedule them out. And then in the semester before, so for example, in, for the, the fall slate of shows, we hold, we hold auditions for those shows in the spring preceding it. And all the directors are in there. And by the way, everyone is, there are open auditions for everyone in the Missouri State community. So if you are a student or a faculty member or a staff member, in at Missouri State University, you can come and audition for our main stage shows. We do have a policy that theater students get first consideration. So that's something to remember, but it is certainly open. And if it, that's the kind of thing you like doing, come and audition with us. But we then, we hold our, our main, what we call the um, unified auditions. These are short little auditions that, that people give throughout the night. They come in about five minute time slots and take take about two and a half to three hours and we see we get two nights of those we see as many people as we can see and then we call back those people 
uh, that we want to see again for certain roles. And then we put out the cast lists and then we come up with a rehearsal schedule that happens outside of the normal class times. Now, for all kinds of reasons, that's not always been great for schedules of both the directors and the, and the production team, the faculty and the staff, essentially, uh, nor for the actors, particularly for those who work second jobs. Uh, mm. So it's, we are trying to rethink that model a little bit. And it looks like, and I'm not going to say with certainty that it's happening yet because there's still a vote yet to be taken, but it is a pretty popular initiative that we will, starting next year, move the productions into the curriculum. So that means that means that faculty get a get to count. If you're doing directing for a show, that counts as one of your teaching assignments. It's part of your course load. Um, and then students can t- will be taking if they get cast in a role, or if they're working as a designer, or they're working in a in a support role of some kind, they can take basically get they can get credit for those roles. Right now, they don't. So they're doing it out of the kindness of their hearts because it's what they want to do and because that's what they're training to do. But they're doing it on their own time, usually at, at their own cost, meaning they're not you know, making money being at a part-time job. And then you've got faculty giving of their own time as well in the roles that they need to. So now everybody gets, gets a little bit more out of it. There's a little more stakes involved. And I think it will work great going forward. I think this is a really good model for us. Oh, so. Yeah. So now, so it's, and it's not that the, the rehearsals happen during the day, they will still probably happen at night and um, we will rehearse for big chunks of time. Usually a rehearsal lasts anywhere between three and four hours. And we usually re- rehearse four to five times a week. So it's a big time commitment. And, and this is, this is to alleviate some of those concerns and some of those issues. It doesn't tackle everything, but uh, I'm really excited about it. And I think it, it's going to be good for us. Extending along the same topic, you you had mentioned at the dog park uh, where we both <laughs> uh, frequent with our respective companion animals. Yes, uh, a a student theater company. Yeah, the Laboratory Theater Company. The Laboratory Theater Company. Yes, the Laboratory Theater Company is a initiative that I came up with uh, when I got hired here. My thinking behind it was well, I, I always when I teach theater 101 or teach kind of introductory level courses to theater, one of the things that I always talk about is that I analogize theater to a laboratory, to a scientific laboratory where theater, like a lab, you, a laboratory is a place where you can, you know, mix chemicals up and do things that might potentially be a little dangerous, (laughs) but it's a relatively safe place to do those things. There's safety precautions in place so that if anything does go wrong, it can be dealt with very quickly. Uh, but it's a place of study. It's a place where you you do all of that, even though it may be a little dangerous, so that you can see what the results are and learn from it. Theater is not really any different. The theater is the laboratory for humanity. It is the laboratory of the human condition. What does it mean when when two people get together and and one starts a fight and eventually kills the other one? I, as awful as that may sound, that's what we do in theater. We do that all the time. What does it mean to to do some of the most awful things a human being can do, but also some of the most wonderful things a human being can do and make this make sacrifices beyond what some of us even could ever consider for our lives. We see those things happening in the theater and it's a place to do these kind of dangerous activities so that we can learn from them. And even when there are 
explosions and combustible inter- character interactions, nothing's going to hurt you. Nothing's going to come off of the stage, hopefully. Nothing's going to come off of the stage and, and harm anybody that's witnessing it except knowledge. That's the only thing that's going to hit you. And so that's why we do theater. And, and that's why I call it a laboratory. And that's where the name Laboratory Theater Company came from. And it is a student run, is a real world theater company that is run and administered completely by students in the theater program. When did it begin? Uh, we started, well, we started official operations in the fall. We did a kind of a startup campaign back in uh, the spring of 2021. Uh, we did a little show in late April, early May, just to kind of make a big announcement and say, here we are, we're on the scene. But the first executive board and uh, full operations began in the fall of 2021. And so our artistic director is a student. The, we have associate artistic director, financial director, marketing director, uh, company manager, all of these really great positions that you would see in a professional theater company out in the real world. Yeah. And these are all staffed by students and they choose a season of plays. They have to come up with where they're going to stage these plays. Right now we are in a partnership with Springfield Little Theater. We use their annex space called the Judy, um, named after Judith R. Reynolds, the lovely Yay. benefactor of our college. So uh, wonderful connection there, but they, you know, that is, that is not free. We rent that space with them. So they're working. Uh, these are students who are building community relationships, working out these partnerships, working out contracts and how to, how to make that happen. They are balancing their own books. They are doing fundraising. We've raised, uh, we've raised just, just over $4,000 this year for our operational budget uh, so that we can, because Whenever we do a play, we have to purchase the rights to that play. If it's a musical, it's even more expensive. And so we've got to purchase the rights to do those things. We've got to purchase the, the materials we need to not only put on the show, but some, in some cases we have to purchase the books and the scores and all of this kind of stuff. There's a lot of costs involved. And these are our university students who are making all of this happen. I, do not, I, I am very hands-off. I step back and say, you guys do it. Make it happen. And, and they're incredibly hardworking students. And I, I really just want to give a shout out to the current leadership of the LTC. They're doing such great work. And, and amidst some big challenges, the, the COVID stuff hasn't gone away. And so they're still fighting through that. They've also developed partnerships with local charities. Um, in the fall, they were partnered with Harmony House in hmm. town. And we did a clothing and resources drive for them. And now they are partnered with Rare Breed uh, mm-hmm. in town, and they're doing a similar, very similar thing. So I, I just am so, so excited for their work because it truly is, for me, what I think the best thing we can teach our students, which is how to be theater makers. And not only just make theater, but also make it important for your community, make it a part of your community, make it the community, make yeah. it a place where community happens. And I think they've taken that challenge and they have just run with it and they've done amazing, amazing work. So, so, you know, it's a great student opportunity. I, as I mentioned earlier, if you're a student at Missouri state university, but you're not a theater student, this is a great gr- group to get involved with. They, they are, they always need directors. They always need designers. They need people to work on the productions that they do. They need actors. They need singers. They need dancers. They need people to hand out programs. Like they need anyone and everyone who has any interest in theater uh, to come and help out. So 
look them up. You can look them up on on any of the social medias. I know that they've got a Instagram, Facebook page. I don't, I don't know. They may have a TikTok. I don't know. Um, but you can find them pretty easily, and they're they're great students to get connected with. And and yeah, so it's 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 a truly unique aspect of what we do at Missouri State in the theater department. There are very 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 few schools around the country that actually have a theater company attached to their department. And so this is a really unique opportunity that, and, a, and a unique platform where we can provide students with the chance to learn how to make, create, create theater and be producers and not just the people on stage who are putting on shows. This is thinking about it much more holistically. One of the things I love is that, so every year the LTC has a new mission. So if you don't know anything about a theater company, most theater companies are, are nonprofits. So they have to have some kind of mission statement that reflects their values and reflect what they do. Okay. And the great thing about the LTC is that our mission statement can change every year. I mean, there's an overarching kind of educational mission statement, which is to give students the, the opportunity to work in these kinds of positions in theater. That's very beneficial for them to know. But every year they get to develop their own mission statement for their season. So if they want to do a season about, um, you know, flying purple dinosaurs, they can make their mission statement about flying purple dinosaurs. Now, this year happens to be about the marginalized. So marginalized voices is their big call this year. And so they're focusing on women's voices via their first seat. Their first play of the year was the women of Lockerbie. And it was the. It was a kind of a docudrama story talking about the Lockerbie bombing that happened, I believe, in the 1980s was what it was. And it happened over Lockerbie, Scotland. And it was the women who had lost loved ones because of this tragic event and their stories. We were supposed to do Carrie the musical, uh, which if you know, if you've ever seen the movie, the musical follows the film pretty closely. Like a horror movie? Yeah, yeah, but it's less about, you know, the, the play is less about the horror aspects of it and more about the sense of Carrie being a different kind of person, somebody who just, who doesn't fit in, who doesn't- Ostracized. Yeah, who doesn't have a place and and how she's treated and, you know, bullying and all that kind of, the, the consequences of those kinds of things. And we were supposed to do it, uh, but as I mentioned, because of COVID issues, uh, with the Omricon wave and coming back from winter break, they've had to postpone, but- Again, they've shown nothing but class and brilliance in one wanting to make sure that they take, you know, part of part of putting on theater and, and saying that you're doing something for the community is also caring about the community. Hmm. And they've just been brilliant about putting the cast in the immediate community of this show first wow. and thinking about their safety and thinking about their needs. And after some issues happened with with COVID and some positive tests and some other things going on. They decided that, hey, you know, there's this adage that, that the show must go on. But in reality, no, not when people's lives are at risk. And that's that we, we can't we can't be beholden to, to old uh, mottos and, you know, silly things like that. We have to truly care about people. And they've shown that and they decided, you know, this isn't going to be fun. No one wants to do this, but we need to postpone and they've they've worked and that's that's actually not as easy a decision to make nor is it an easy decision to facilitate because you have to then go back to all these organizations you have contracts with 
for mm. example, the Springfield Little Theater, mm-hmm. see if we can find a new weekend that they're willing to help us out with and give us and use their space again. We have to go back to the the rights holding organization that holds the rights to that particular production to carry the musical and renegotiate our contract with them. And these are these are students doing this work and they they handled it brilliantly, handled it smoothly. Uh, but they will have another they will have another show coming up. It is an original production, okay. original play, world premiere of a play called Mostly Chaste. And it's about life in a uh, Catholic school, a girl school. Uh-huh. And so uh, kind of you can see That's... there's plenty of hijinks and such that people will get into. But uh, yeah, so it's it, they're going to do that show a little bit later this semester. And then the very last show, they moved Carrie to the very end of the semester, uh, which will be probably early May, the first weekend in May. One other question that I have to ask you has to do with the, the story of the teaching drama podcast. Um, Because I I like to think of there being a sort of community of arts and letters podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But but anyway, I was looking back at your your back issues, as it were, um, and I saw episodes going back to as far as 2019, maybe maybe farther. I'm not sure. Um, So when when did you start and who did you start it with? Yeah. So the teaching drama podcast came about when I was having conversations with my partner Elena Yerchek. We met on the campus. We met as teachers in the theater program, I would say on the campus as if we were students and young and in love, but we met, uh, we met as, as theater professors, which is a far different situation <laughs> in love, maybe young, no frustrated, definitely because of, you know, faculty and politics and all that stuff. But um, we, we, it was at the university of Indianapolis and I, I'd already, my whole career had been about being a professor in a, university theater program I, I i that had been my trajectory for as long as i could remember and when i met elena this was her first teaching job and she had not set about being a teacher she kind of fell into it after finishing her mfa and scenic design and what got us first talking to one another was was about teaching how do you teach theater like what what did what goes into it? What are, what are good things for students to know? What are things that we need to warn them against? How do we prepare them for this career in this field and for life more broadly? Yeah. And so out of those conversations, we decided we would start a podcast. Uh, so this was, it was 2019. So I think it was March or April or March of 2019 when we started. And it was just mostly just conversations with the two of us talking about how to teach theater. So the mm. teaching drama part of it came about as like, oh, the drama of teaching, but also, you know, that fact that we are drama teachers as well. So, so Elena and I had a great time doing this podcast. We did several episodes in 2019. And then she decided to actually, when the pandemic hit, leave theater and theater education and go a completely new direction, uh, got a different degree in paralegal mm-hmm. studies, is now a paralegal and is, is enjoying that. But she also made the decision, and I tried to convince her, I actually didn't want her to leave the podcast. I felt like she still had great, wonderful, incredible things to say, but she decided that she would step away from the podcast because she didn't feel right about not being a theater teacher anymore and, and trying to still talk about it. So I tried to man it by myself for a little while 
And that wasn't very easy. I, I, I'm much more conversational. And I like to talk to somebody. So I contacted a good friend of mine, Seth Wilson. He, he and I went, we did our master's degrees together. And then we stayed in touch well after that. We're still very close uh, today. And we've collaborated on a few things over the years. And so I contacted, he was actually a guest on one of my episodes. And then um, not long after that, we got to talking and I said, hey, do you want to be my host? Because we have good conversations. We, we you know, we're co-host, I should say. We, 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 you know, good banter, good back and forth, good thoughts, all of that. And we know a lot of people that we could potentially interview. And so that's how, that's how that, that came about. The modern, the current iteration of the podcast started with when Seth came on board and we kind of rethought the format a little bit and okay. how, to, how to, you know, what exactly we wanted to attack and what how we wanted to attack it and who we wanted to talk to and bring on and those sorts of things. So, so it's changed a little bit in the time that, that it started. Uh, I think any good podcast, any good podcast does, mm -hmm. uh, but that's, that's, that's roughly how it came about. Seth is, is current. Just when you, everybody knows he's, he's works in theater. He's a, uh, he has a PhD in theater like myself and he is uh, on the company of stage left in Chicago. So he's a part of their ensemble up there. Uh, so still very much in the world of theater and practicing it and making it happen. Yeah. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been a really cool podcast to be a part of. And, uh, and you have um, plans to, for future episodes, uh, upcoming season. We do, we do. And I, uh, you know, we've never broken it down into the season format. It's just kind of like a rolling thing that just yeah. keeps going. But um, he and I are, are still, still considering changes that we might make down the road to make it a little better figuring out what will work best with this platform. But most of what we're trying to do is just give information out there to folks who in any way may work in theater and, and the education of theater. So it's kind of this point of intersection between the, the professional practice of theater and the and teaching theater. And so, you know, we get people who do both people who work at, you know, professionally and then people who are also theater educators and uh, get their perspectives. And then also just talk, he and I just talk a lot about different things that are coming up. We've been talking a lot about digital theater lately hmm. and how is that shaping, reshaping the landscape of theater. And there's a lot of debate happening right now amongst theater scholars about whether digital theater is theater or is it really film, television, media stuff. Hmm. So we, we've brought that big big discussion into our podcast as of late so so I don't, I don't exactly know where it'll go as things progress into the future but we we don't have any plans of stopping anytime soon that's so cool it sounds like a fascinating debate so um any listeners who are interested in in that or want to hear more about it go over to the teaching drama podcast and find out whether there is a fourth wall or not uh <laughs> <laughs> you may or may not like the answer yes yeah, so the answer may surprise you yeah so one of the other things that i i'm really i love doing that's kind of this public facing work like a podcast but different is uh i also operate the uh, youtube channel that i that my moniker my persona is the theater history professor mm. that i i countenance myself as a theater historian and so I really wanted to share my love of theater history with other people and also inform folks about how much theater his theater plays into history writ large. And so I, I created this channel so that I could explore some topics about theater and the history of the world and, and how theater 
plays into that. And there, it's been a lot of fun. It's a real challenge though. Uh, podcasts are pod, podcasts are great, but they're technology wise and editing and everything. They're, they're, they're relatively low impact. I mean, I, I think if you're, you can make it more complicated if you want to, but shooting video, you know, it may seem simple that, that putting a video on YouTube, you know, putting up a video uh, for YouTube would, would just go very smoothly and very quickly, but in actuality that gosh i've learned so much about design about editing about script writing that's actually kind of why i got into it aside from just my love of wanting to do things yeah i wanted to be a better script writer i wanted to write better ex- publicly accessible or what we might call lay material that is is that can connect with people uh without them needing to be real scholars of history you know if as you probably know when you go to grad school and when you spend all your time doing kind of scholarship and this high academic stuff you, you learn this very particular way of writing about things that's that's dense and very difficult to unpack and and oh, that's yeah. fine that it, it you know there's reasons why it needs to be that way when, when academics talk talk to other academics is very jargony yeah. you know yeah, yeah. right we're gonna let's talk about all the ills of postmodernism and all that stuff. Yes, but um, but I wanted to do something that was much more about uh, a general public and connecting with them and sharing this love and and it it surprised me how difficult it was to to take something that you know a lot about. You've spent a big part of your life just studying it inside and out, but you've also got strong opinions about it. And you've, you, you're just wanting to share this passion and love. How do you bring all that together in a way that it makes sense that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a bit of storytelling. Yeah. It's a bit of education. It's a bit of entertainment and you've got to bring it all together to make it work. And, and it's, it, it's been a really difficult thing, but I'm, I've loved it because of that challenge. Well, you, you do it well. And oh, yeah. thank you. I've had the opportunity to check out the channel and, and, and it's great. And you make a good point about, I hadn't thought of the difference between podcast and YouTube video, but you, you know, YouTube is where people are. It's, it's yeah. a great idea. The, the only, the only difference I thought of at first was like, well, I would have to comb my hair. And so that's, that's like a, that's a, a no go <laughs> right away, but I hadn't thought yeah, about it. Yeah. No, I, I thought I've had to take my glasses. Like I've realized I've, I've done a whole thing, did a whole shoot with my glasses on and then I went and watched it after and I was like, oh my gosh, there's a glare, like a big glare right in front of my eyes the whole time. You can't even <laughs> see my eyes. And I'm just like, oh, so, you know, a whole take, it just gets wasted. Yep. You can't. And so you got to go back and do post. that again. Right. Yep, exactly. But um, you, the scripts, the idea of, you know, with podcasts, you kind of have a, have some talking points and just let it mm-hmm. unfold conversationally. But um, and of course, I mean, in drama, you are going to be used to scripts, I guess, but that'd be something that'd take a lot of getting used to for me. And it'd be a big difference. In, yeah. In the um, theater scripts are uh, drama is not, is not explanatory. Uh, it, the whole, the explanation of a line is, is all underneath the line is in the actor's performance. So writing for education, writing kind of educational content that's meant to be engaging, meant to be interesting, meant to bring people into the topic and the content is is actually really really hard i you know i it's it's been the probably one of the most challenging things i've done in the last few years is to learn how to write in this format but but i'm really enjoying it it it, it has been 
a learning experience at every step of the way. And I, and I hope to keep getting better. I hope that at some point I can get some better equipment. That's, that's also the other side of it is, you know, I can put my headphones in on my phone and record a podcast episode if I want to, but it, it, I, it takes a little more than just setting my phone up and, and, and putting on, you know, a good, you know, getting a good microphone or something and, and then filming myself. It's more than that. I've got a, yeah, I use a teleprompter and I've never used a teleprompter oh, before nice. either. Yeah, that, that was a really cool thing too, as well as to get that kind of technology set up. So I write my script, put it in the teleprompter and, and working with that has been a, some, a learning experience as well. So it all around has just been a lot of fun for me to be a part of. And I hope that people who watch it are finding it enjoyable as well. Yeah, it's fun being a podcast host, as you well know. That's certainly been my experience, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm uh, so grateful to, to all, all the guests who are so generous with their time and, and expertise and um, willing to just share fascinating information with me. Um, that's, that's the best thing about it is um, because there's, I am a educator in the College of Arts and Letters, you know, like we all are, and I'm only... I know I have like a little postage stamp size view of what's going on and yeah. put, put, putting it all together with um, all the things that are going on and all the other departments helps me sort of get a bigger picture of, you know, the, the work that's being done for our students. And um, it's, there's really, there's really a lot going on and it's amazing to, to get to hear about it. Yeah. You're the person to come to about what's going on in, in our coal. Uh, so, you know, if, if I need, if I need the down low or the, the juicy bits about what's happening around <laughs> who's teaching what and, and what's going on, I'm going to come to you. <laughs> you're, you're now the interlocutor. You're the person, you're the network hub that we all have the connected interlocutor. With. Yes. Nice. Title of my forthcoming memoir. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we can go ahead and, uh, and end on that note. <laughs> I'll take that straight to the bank. Thank you. Perfect. There you go. Thanks for listening to this episode of Our Coal Conversations. You can follow the college on Facebook at msu.rcoal and on Twitter at msu underscore rcoal. And if you have an idea for Our Coal Conversations, or if you want to get in touch with me for any reason, you can send me an email at jhoward at missourystate.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>